through the Bible study tonight, and uh, we are currently in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. So tonight we are going to be in chapter 10, and uh, we're going to be talking about the title of the message tonight is The Measure That Matters, okay? The Measure That Matters. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this tonight. Lord, we do thank you and praise you for just that report from Jordan. And, and uh, Lord, what a difficult place to serve you. Thank you for Paul and his family. And Lord, tonight as we consider your word and Paul's letter to the Corinthians as we come to this last section, I pray that you would give insight and understanding and application to our hearts that we would see tonight and be encouraged tonight to understand who we are in Jesus, what you've called us to, who you desire to be in our lives. I thank you, Lord, for each and every person here this evening, and I just ask tonight that your word would go forth in a way to comfort and encourage and build up and strengthen, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of 2 Corinthians is divided into three sections. And the three sections are basically a response to a report that Paul received from his good friend Titus. And Titus reported to him about what was happening, what was going on in the church. And Paul had met up with Titus in Macedonia, and Titus was reporting about how the church was faring and how they had responded to Paul's previous letter. And so Paul responds to that report by writing this book that we know as Second Corinthians, and it's divided, he divides his response into three sections basically dealing with three responses. The first section is chapters 1 through 7, and we have seen that those chapters are full of great comfort and gladness and exaltation because Paul was stoked in what Titus was telling him about how the church was faring and how they were doing that, for the most part, that they had responded very well to Paul's previous letter, that they had dealt with one of the biggest issues that were going on in the the church. And if you were with us when we went through 1 Corinthians, that was a hard letter, right? I mean, there was just week after week after week of rebuke, you know, because Paul was having to deal with all the mess that was going on. And so 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7, he's really rejoicing in their response to that. And then in section 2 is chapters 8 and 9, where we saw that Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to follow through on their previous commitment to help the church in Jerusalem that was really going through a difficult time, that they were struggling financially. And we looked at that in our two previous studies prior to the Passion Week. Well, chapters 10 through 13 make up the final section. And in this section, Paul is going to be dealing with another major problem that was happening in the church. And I think one of the things that the New Testament makes very, very clear for us is this, that in the church of Jesus Christ, the church is not perfect. It's been said that there is no such thing as a perfect church, 
And if you find one, don't join it because you'll ruin it, right? You've heard that before. (laughs) It's true. The church is not perfect because the church is made up of imperfect people. The church is made up of of sinners, of broken people. It's one of the reasons why I always remind you that the church is full of broken people. We are all those who are, are broken and we're in the process of being transformed by a loving Redeemer. Now, I'll be honest with you that there was a time where I really struggled with this idea. You see, I had what I would call sort of an idealistic view of what the church should be. And I think that kind of came out a lot in my early days of preaching that, you know, I just thought, hey, the church is full of people who are desiring to be like Christ. And the church is full of people who are eagerly trying to follow the Bible. But what I have discovered is this, is the church is full of people who want to do the right thing, but are constantly struggling with their flesh who are constantly struggling with their old nature, who can identify with what Peter or Jesus told Peter when he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the church is made up of of people who are still in process, that we are all these people who are still growing and we haven't got it all together. We're still learning how to walk, like we talked about on Sunday, in that resurrection power. And and the church is really a mixture of a wide variety of people who are all in different stages of their maturity and walk with Jesus. A wide variety of people who are all in different stages of their learning how to walk in grace. And the bigger the church is, the wider that variety is going to be of, of maturity in that body. And thus we make up the church Or when we look at the church, it's it's one of the reasons why, because that is the makeup of the church, that we really need to show grace and patience to one another because we are all a work in progress. Can I get an amen to that? Another thing that's been surprising about the church is that there are always people in the church with wrong motives and agendas. There's always going to be that. There's always going to be false teachers who are seeking to take advantage of God's people. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said the church would be full of the wheat and the tares. And Paul actually told the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he said, beware, be on guard because savage wolves are gonna come in among you. And he wasn't talking about animals. He was talking about people that were going to come in and they would be wolves. And you know what wolves do? Wolves prey on sheep. You can always tell who a wolf is. Wolves prey on sheep. They, they want to eat sheep. They want to take advantage of sheep. Well, it's the false teachers and the wolves that Paul is addressing here in this third section of chapters 10 through 13. And Paul is going to come against them in a very, very strong manner. In fact, the language in these chapters is so strong, at times, it feels like someone else is writing it. It feels like, like, man, this doesn't sound like Paul because of his harsh tone. But his harsh tone should not surprise us because the same thing was modeled by Jesus. 
You know, the only people that Jesus came against harshly, strongly, were the false religious leaders who were taking advantage of the people of God. So this is what this third section is about. And the problem in Corinth was this. These false teachers in Corinth were challenging Paul's apostolic authority. You see, and this is the reason, don't miss this. If they could undermine Paul's authority, then they could undermine his message. And that's always what false teachers want to do. So if they could undermine his authority, they could undermine his message. And so for the sake of the true believers in Corinth, Paul is going to address these accusations. And he begins by giving insight into the spiritual battle that was taking place. Look at verse 1. He says, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you. And here we see his heart. He's like saying, look, I'm begging with you. I'm begging you guys. His heart is for this church and these people. I'm pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. But I beg you that I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold with some. Now Paul's saying here, look, I'm pleading with you, and, I, and I might, it might feel like I'm coming on strong, but, but I'm doing that now because I really don't want to come on strong when I come to see you again. But, he says, there's going to be some that I'm going to come on strong with. And he's identifying here who they are, these false teachers. He says, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. In other words, there are those who think that we're really not spiritual at all. And then he says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Paul says, look, we're human, just like anybody else. We're walking according to the flesh like everyone else. But understand this, the battle that we're in is spiritual. It's a spiritual battle. The attack might be coming from people, but know this, there's always a spiritual element behind the people that are seeking to undermine the work of God in your life or in a church or in a city. And since the battle is spiritual, it's important that we realize that our weapons are spiritual as well. So Paul says, look at verse three again. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The idea is fleshly or human but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience with your obe- when your obedience is fulfilled. I want you to notice verse 4 again. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Strongholds in ancient times were the most fortified places. They covered, they were covered by massive stones that made them almost impossible to penetrate. And built within the stone walls were these high towers that were these lookouts where they could see the, where the enemy was coming from. So here's what Paul's doing. By using this term strongholds, Paul is identifying the strongest fortresses in society that were currently holding people captive. And in verse 5, he identifies what is behind these strongholds when he says, casting down arguments and every high thing or every high tower 
that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Here's what Paul's telling us. The strongholds are a result of arguments and reasonings and philosophies that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, that seek to undermine the message of the gospel. And please would you notice that these strongholds are not demons. That's not the context here. He's talking here about about ideological fortresses, philosophical fortresses, religious fortresses that directly are aimed at undermining the knowledge of God. Philosophies and ideologies and false religions that are, yes, inspired by demons, but it's these ideologies that create these strongholds that put people in bondage. And one of the biggest ones that was happening in Paul's day were these Judaizers or these legalists that were coming into the churches that had been established and telling people if they really wanted to be saved, they needed to follow the law of God. They needed to follow uh, the, the law of Moses. They needed to be circumcised. That's what we're going to see a lot of when we get into the book of Galatians in a few months about a month and a half in June. But these Judaizers, these false teachers, and I love what Calvin said about this. He said, for nothing is more opposed to spiritual wisdom of God than the wisdom of the flesh, and nothing more opposed to his grace than man's natural ability. Now, I want to ask to think about today, what are some of the strongholds in our culture? Those are big strongholds in their culture. What are big strongholds in our culture? Well, I think religion is another one of them. There's a lot of people who have a false sense of security that they're going to go to heaven because they belong to some church, because they were christened as a child, or because you know, they were baptized as a child, or because you know, they, they belong to such and such church, but they have no relationship with God. That's a stronghold. That's a false ideology. Another one is relativism. You know, the idea today, that says there are no absolutes that you know you can just kind of do what you want what's right for you might be right for you but it's not right for me and we just kind of all do our own thing that's a stronghold today that's a message that's spreading in our culture that is holding people in bondage materialism sexual perversion pride greed bitter angerness these are all strongholds and behind every single one of those strongholds is an ideology or a philosophy that listen has distorted the biblical view of man's existence it's always aimed at that ideologies that want to make us not created in the image of god but created in the image of some animal that we're evolving you know that type of thing and anything that we can do to kind of detach ourselves from relationship with God because if we can attach ourselves attach ourselves from relationship with God then there's no one to answer to and these are these ideologies and people buy into it and, and it creates bondage it's why Paul would write in Romans hey don't let the world squeeze you into its mold That's what the world is always seeking to do right now. It's seeking to squeeze us into its mold. It's seeking to undermine what the Bible says about marriage, what the Bible says about gender, what the Bible says about sexuality. These are all ideologies that our world right now is seeking to shape us into. 
These are the strongholds that are holding people today. And we, you see it. You know people in this place. And they're, they're in bondage. And so the question is, Paul says, but we have these weapons that are mighty in God for the pulling down of these strongholds. What are they? I think there's three main ones. The first is the word of God, the gospel. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, in verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And church, can I tell you this? Can I, can, I hope you believe in the power of God's word. We have to. You know, sometimes people think they need to defend the Bible. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, you don't need to defend the Bible. It's like the Bible's like a lion. Just let it out of its cage and let it do its work, you know? And it's true. It's like we just got to get it out. We just got to share it. That God's word, it's, it's powerful. I remember years ago when we went on our very first mission trip from this church back in like 1989, we went to Yugoslavia what was then Yugoslavia. And it, it was, uh, um, communism had just fallen there. And we went and we were there, a small little group of six of us. And on our trip was a, a gal by the name of Linda. And Linda was uh, just a, she, a gal that just loves Jesus so much. She radiated the Lord. But she was not like a Bible scholar. You know, she wasn't like versed in apologetics and, and that type of thing. And I remember her being in this park and she was, you know, preaching the gospel. And this guy came up, this older man, and he started just, you know, challenging her. What about this? And her response every single time was, I'm sorry, sir, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know this. Jesus loves you, and he died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. And he rose again to give you life. And he's like, you know, and he asked her another question. And like four times, she answered the same way, and the man stormed off, just angry and, oh, stupid Americans, and, you know, this kind of thing. Well, this guy comes back the next day. And he tells her this, he says, I could not sleep all night long because your words were haunting me and I need to give my life to Jesus. She didn't answer any of his questions, you know, but it was just the power of the gospel that had had penetrated his heart. And sometimes we forget that. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't study apologetics and have answers. Peter does say that we need to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us to every man that, that asks. But sometimes, you know, I think we, we think, oh, I, I can't share and I can't be used because I don't know enough. Hey, if you know the basic gospel that Jesus Christ died upon the cross to pay the price for, for your sins and the sins of all the world, and he rose again to give life to anyone who believe in him, John three sixteen. if you know that, that's enough. And God can use you. And you might have to say, you know what, sir, I don't know the answer to that question. I'll, I'll, I'll go, you know, try to find it out, but I do know this. And you just keep, you know, sharing the message of the gospel. And the Bible says that the message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And that is our first message. I remember listening to, to Greg Laurie. He was last week, and he was talking about a time when he was visiting Billy Graham and, and, uh, and, he was kind of, it was when he was kind of beginning his crusade ministry, Greg was, his crusade ministry. 
And, and he was talking to Billy and he says, you know, I think I really need to brush up on my apologetics. And, and he said, Ruth said to him, Greg, just preach the truth, you know. And, and it was like a good reminder to him, like, you know, it's the gospel. It's the power of the gospel. So that's our first weapon. It's the, the word of God. It's sharing truth that I don't need to argue with somebody. I just, I don't need to try to convince them. I just need to share the truth with them. Let the lion out of the cage and let it do its work. And he might not see it right then, but God's word, the Bible says, does not return void. The second weapon that we have is the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes it's the Holy Spirit working through the word of God. We're told in John chapter 16, verse 8, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing in the hearts of lives of people. He's convicting them of their sin, of righteousness, of what's right, of their need for Jesus. These are our weapons that are powerful. And notice how Paul puts this. He says, and these weapons are bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You know, we often quote this verse as something that we need to do. You know, that we need to, I need to bring all, every thought into captive under the being scribe. That's really not the context. The context Paul's talking about is the power of the gospel to bring every thought captive under the obedience of Christ. And again, I love the way uh, D.A. Carson puts this. He says, Paul's language of destruction here is not merely about winning arguments or debates. He means something far more. His weapons destroy the way people think and demolish their sinful thought patterns, the mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. The Holy Spirit working through the word of God completely can completely transform the way that we think. Let me ask you this. How many of you here have had your thinking transformed by the Holy Spirit working through the word of God? Yeah, I think all of us, right? I mean, have you ever have you look back and you think, I can't believe I used to think that, you know? I can't believe I used to think that that was true, you know? And, 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 but it's like, over time, God's spirit. I remember, you know, when I first was getting married, I had a really kind of warped view of what, you know, marriage was about. I thought, you know, I know everything I know, need to know about, you know, marriage. The Bible says the wife needs to submit. I know what I need to know, you know? <laughs> And boy, did I learn that. Man, there's so much more about it than that, you know? And this transformation, the Holy Spirit, like opening my eyes and making me realize, gosh, you know, he he has to do a lot of work in me if this thing's going to work out, you know? And um, so this is what Paul meant in Romans chapter 12 when he said, having your minds transformed by the renewing of the word of God. So it's the Holy Spirit working through the word of God. That's our second weapon. And our third main weapon is prayer. And prayer aligns our heart with the heart of God. And sometimes, listen, the best thing that you can do for a person is to pray for them. And I want to tell you this, that if there's somebody in your life that you have a burden for that you want to share with, I want to encourage you to start praying for them before you ever try to start, you know, start talking to them. And oftentimes it's much more beneficial to pray for them than to argue with them because it's prayer that God moves and works. We believe in the power of prayer. 
And so the power of prayer that God's moving and working on the hearts of people. So Paul says, the weapons of our warfare. We're not, we're not in a fleshly battle. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even interested. This is what he's saying. I'm not interested in getting in you know, debates with these false teachers. No, I'm going to stand upon the truth of God's word. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do its work. And I'm going to pray for them. So Paul was not about to get into this fleshly battle of a war of words with these religious leaders. And you could really sum up, you could really sum up the problem that these religious, these false religious leaders had with Paul in this one sentence, that Paul didn't measure up. And this is what they thought when they looked at Paul. He didn't measure up in his authenticity. He didn't measure up in his authority, and he didn't measure up in his appearance. And for the sake of the believers in Corinth who were susceptible to being swayed by these false teachers, remember, if they can undermine Paul's authority, they can undermine his message. So for their sake, Paul is going to address the concerns in the rest of the book. This is what he's going to be talking about from Verse 7 of chapter 10 all the way through verse 13, or chapter 13. And the focus tonight on the rest of this chapter, I'm going to divide it up this way. That it's not what people think of us that matters. That's verses 7 through 11. Number two, it's not even what we think of ourselves that matters. That's verses 12 through 16. But ultimately what matters is what the Lord thinks of us. That's verses 17 and 18. So number one, it's not what people think of us that matters. Look at verse seven. He says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him consider again this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. That's kind of a funny statement Paul makes here. We are convinced, he says, that we are Christ. But here's why he says this. It seems that these false teachers were claiming to have sort of a spiritual elitism. And and this was their idea. Paul, you don't measure up to us. You're not really as spiritual as we are. Now, Paul could have been tempted to get into a verbal sparring match with them over who was more authentic, but Paul doesn't do that. And I want you to catch this because what Paul emphasized was not who he was, but whose he was, whose he belonged to. And he says, look, I belong to Christ. Paul would use this as a trademark for his life. I am what I am by the grace of God. Paul would say, I'm not a self-made man. I'm a God-made man. Paul went from being a persecutor, the persecutor of the church, to a preacher of the gospel. Now, the question posed here in verse 7 really frames this whole discussion on how we measure things. And we could paraphrase it in this way. Are you going to measure things by the container or the contents? You know, it's easy for us to look at the container, the outside, right? And oftentimes, the outside looks incredible. You know, you see somebody that's just a well-put-together person, and it's like, wow, man, they're incredible. Or sometimes you go to a church that just, you know, on the outside are just all the trappings and all the, you know, the, the core and everything about it. It's like, wow, that, that's just, you know, incredible. On the outside, it just looks incredible, but underneath, and that person that just has it looks all together, they're shallow. 
Underneath, you find out there isn't a whole lot there. But the flip side of that is also true. Have you ever seen somebody who wasn't real put together, didn't seem like they really had it going on, and you get to know them, and you're like, man, this person's deep. Yeah, this person really knows God. This person has a really incredible relationship with God. So this is what Paul is saying. Don't look on the outward. Don't focus on the outward appearance. Remember Samuel made this mistake? God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, I want you to go down to the house of Jesse and anoint one of his sons to be the next king. And he goes down there and Sam, uh, Jesse has all of his sons line up and the first one that he sees is Eliab and he's the oldest and he's just like Saul. He's tall, dark, and handsome. You know, that's, that's who he is. He looks like a warrior. He looks like a leader. And, God, and Samuel's like, great choice, God. You know, this guy looks amazing. And God's like, he's not the one. He said, Samuel, you're making a big mistake. He says, man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, but I can't see the heart. At least not the way God does. I don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. And that is true. But you know what you can see is indicators. There are indicators. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, it says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you listen to somebody long enough, you can tell where their heart is. If you're listening to somebody who's just always super critical, it's an indication of what's going on in their heart, of where their heart is at. Are they critical or are they inspiring? You know, sometimes, and I, you know, it just grieves my heart, I'll, I'll listen to a husband or, or a wife who just is always bagging on their spouse. It's always, you know, these little cutting remarks just all the time. And it's just grieving. It's an indication of what's going on. And I know there's problems in that marriage. It's an indication. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Another thing that reveals where our heart is at is the things that we make priorities in our lives. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. You can oftentimes tell where somebody's heart is at by their priorities. That's where their treasure is at. So there are indicators. And Paul is saying here, don't look on the outward appearance, don't focus on the container, but focus on the contents. And concerning his life, a closer look would reveal that Paul was definitely the real deal. That he was all about Jesus. His his witness and his life screamed authentic. And the fruit in his life was abundant. So they didn't think a whole lot about Paul's authenticity, but they also didn't think a whole lot about his authority. Look at verse 8. He says, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed lest I seem to terrify you by my letters. In other words, he's saying, look, I, I don't want to seem like I'm, you know, I'm coming across heavy-handed. He's saying, look, if I'm boasting about our authority, and, and what he's saying here is really he's talking about Paul looked at what God had called him to do as his privilege, and he was excited about it. You know, years ago, when he was still alive, I was at a pastor's conference out at Marietta, and I didn't really know pastor chuck um 
well at all. Um, wasn't you know in his inner circle at all. Had very few conversations with him. But I remember one time sitting out during one of the breaks, and he happened to come walking by, and he stopped and he said, "You know, hey Rob, how you doing?" and and I, and I responded by saying, and it just was, it was where my heart was at. I just responded by saying, I'm doing great. I pastor the best church on the planet. And you know, I'll be honest with you. That's how I feel most of the time. <laughs> there are moments. But most of the time, it's like, that's how I feel. Like, wow, I, I'm, I'm privileged. Like, I, I get to pastor the best church on the planet. And, and I said that, and Paul, I mean, not Paul, uh, Pastor Chuck responded, you know, like, oh, you know, that was his response. And then, and it was so funny as he walked away, I, I thought, God, that was the most stupidest thing I could have ever said. Why did I say that? You know, well, he got up and started the next session by saying, I was just talking to Rob Savato from Calvary Vista, and he said that he pastors the best church on the planet. And then he said, that's how all of us should feel. And you know, but that's, that's Paul's heart here. It's like, if it seems like I'm boasting so much, it's because I'm just excited I, about what God has called me to do. And you know, one of the biggest problems in the church today is that we're allowing the culture to shape the church rather than the church shape the culture. And because of that, the church worldwide is becoming much more liberal in so many ways. And in Corinth, they were having the same problem in the church, especially as it related to leadership. I love what commentator R. Kent Hughes offered. He offers this helpful insight. He said, in Paul's day, his enemies in Corinth had so effectively read their Greco-Roman culture back into their Christianity that they interpreted the gospel in terms of their values. They're taking the culture and using it to interpret the gospel, and it's influencing their values. That's what was happening in Corinth. There's nothing new under the sun, guys. Same thing. And one of the greatest or biggest areas where they manifested itself was in their view of leadership, because in their view of leadership, they boasted in a leader's presence. In his bearing, in his, you know, ability to command an audience. Like, you know, wow, that guy can really, really command an audience. They, they boasted in a leader's rhetorical eloquence. They flashed their resumes and endorsements and their letters of commendations. They bragged about, you know, their honorariums, how much they made and that type of thing. And they boasted in their connectedness in who they knew and who they shared the platform with. That's, that's what was going on in Corinth. That's exactly what's going on in so much of the church today. Today we live in an, in an age where, and this just, I don't even get this, but they call pastors, they call, the, there's rock star pastors. I just want you to know, I've never been called a rock star pastor, all right? But, you know, rock star pastors, pastors who are admired for their speaking ability, their social media platforms, and who their celebrity friends are. And the church holds these men, and sometimes even women today, as icons. It's almost idolatrous until they fall. And we've seen a lot of them fall lately. And then they bail. But notice here, Paul, if we go all the way back to verse 1, 
Paul described his leadership traits as being this, meekness. Notice that in verse 1. Now I, Paul, now I, Paul myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you. These are three things that marked Paul's leadership, meekness. Now, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Think of a stallion that's been tamed. A wild horse that's been brought under control. It's still powerful. It can run, you know, 30, 40 miles an hour. It's powerful. It can climb a mountain. It can pull a wagon. It can hold people on top of it. It's power, but it's under control. You know, that's what Jesus was. Jesus was all-powerful. The most powerful human being who ever lived, but he was under control because he submitted himself to his heavenly father. I only do that which my father commands me to do. Jesus was meek, power under control. Paul also described his leadership with the word gentleness. The idea of gentleness is being kind and fair to people. And again, that's exactly how Jesus was. That's why they called him the friend of sinners. That's why the lowest people liked being around him because he was kind and fair. Lowliness speaks of humility. And again, that was Jesus. He humbled himself even to the point of death. He humbled himself and became the servant of all. He washed his disciples' feet. But here's the thing. That's who Paul was. That's what he modeled because that's what he saw in Jesus. But the false religious leaders in Corinth were not impressed by those traits. They admired leaders who were more forceful, who lorded their authority over others. But Paul knew what Jesus said about that. Let me read to you. I think it'll be on the screen, Matthew 20. He says, but Jesus called them to himself, this is his disciples, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what Jesus modeled. Paul knew that. I love what Warren Wearsby said. He said, it's possible to be too big to serve God, but you can never be too small. Isn't that good? It's possible to be too big, but you can never be too small. Paul understood that it was possible to abuse authority. You see, with authority, we either build up or we tear down. And what Paul's showing us here is that the proper use of authority in verse 8, it's seen in that word edification. The word edification, he says, this is what we've come for. This is what we're about. To, to bring edification, it means to build up and to strengthen. The mentality of authority in the church is completely opposite of that in the world. In the world and in the marketplace, they typically use people to build up the work. The world is cutthroat and people become a means to an end. In business, they use people to build their work. But in the church, it's the exact opposite. We work to build up people. That's the focus. We're seeking to build up people in Christ. 
So everything that we do here at Calvary Vista is aimed at building you up in your relationship with the Lord and building your family up and your kids up in the relationship with the Lord because this is what Paul said in the book of Colossians. This is our aim to present every man complete in Christ. You know, that's what I and the rest of our pastors here are going to answer to the Lord for when we stand before him and he you know, is judging us for our work is how did we do at presenting you as complete in your, re- in your walk with the Lord? That's the aim. That's the goal. That's what we're, we're striving at. The goal is not a bigger church. That's up to God. Numerical growth is up to God. The goal is always this, bigger people. And that's our heart. That's our focus. Not a bigger church, but bigger people. To grow people in the Lord. So they didn't think much of Paul's authority, and they didn't think much also of his appearance. Look at verse 10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is contemptible. The problem was they were focused on externals instead of internals and eternals. You know, a second century historical document gives this physical description of the Apostle Paul. And this is maybe going to ruin it for some of you. I got to tell you, for years, I think it started for me when I was in junior high school, that I used to go to Calvary Costa Mesa on Thursday nights with my mom and dad, and I'd sit in the sanctuary down on the floor listening to Pastor Chuck teach the Bible when I was like 12. And I used to, as I, as I would listen to him teach, I thought, I bet you that's what the, the Apostle Paul looked like. You know, big, strong, you know, big voice. Well, <clears throat> his historical document says that Paul was a small man with bowed legs. Now, Pastor Chuck did have bowed legs. Um, but who had bushy eyebrows, a bald head, and a hooked nose. And it went on to say that his back was stooped and his voice was high-pitched and his eyes just ran constantly. From that outward perception, Paul wasn't much to behold. He wasn't going to make it on People Magazine's, you know, 50 Most Beautiful People. (laughs) He wasn't going to make it. Now notice how Paul answers this accusation. He says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will be indeed when we are present. Here's what Paul's saying. You judge, don't judge the container, judge the contents. And this is what the content of Paul's life spoke, consistency. Paul says, I'm not any different. I'm exactly who I am in the way that I write and what I say and the way I present my heart. I'm exactly how I am with you in letters. I'm the same way in present. Paul was consistent in his ministry among them. And Paul's ministry had withstood the test of time. And you see, the basic lesson that Paul is teaching here is to know who you are in Jesus It's to know that you belong to him and it really doesn't matter what other people think of you. What matters is that you know who you are in Christ. That's what matters. But here's the second thing that he wants us to know. It's not just what we think, what others think of us that matters. That that doesn't matter. 
And also, it's not what we think about ourselves that matter. Look at verse 12. He says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You know, it is so foolish to compare yourself to other people. We can fall into that trap, though, can't we? You know why that's foolish? I'll give you three reasons. Number one, because you're unique. You're uniquely made by God. You're unique in your talents, in your makeup, in the way he's wired you. God has fashioned you and designed you for who you are. You are unique. Number two, you can always find somebody else who's doing worse than you. You know, we, that's what we, what we do. You know, it's like, I, I, I got to figure out how am I doing. And so we, we look for the person that is the worst hu- husband, you know, in the church. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing great. Look at that guy, you know. You always find somebody who's doing worse than you. It's foolish. And that's our tendency, right? But here's the biggest reason why we should never compare ourselves among ourselves is because the standard isn't other people. It's Jesus. He's the standard. And when I look at him, as I'm comparing myself to him, I know there's always room for growth. There's always room in my life for for growth. Paul didn't have an inflated view of himself. He knew who he was, which allowed him to stay grounded, doing exactly what God had called him to do. Notice what he says in verse 13. For we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. You want to know why I use that phrase all the time about you have a sphere of influence? This is why it's biblical. Paul's saying, look, you're part of our sphere of influence. You're, you're, You're who God's brought into my life. You're part of our sphere. You're part of our influence. So next time you hear me say that, it's, I'm, I'm being biblical, okay? You have a sphere of influence. He says, for we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it, is, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. There's again. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Paul uses an interesting phrase here. He speaks of the limits of the sphere. And this can refer to the lanes that were allotted to runners in a race. You ever watch the Olympics? Summer Olympics are about, they're coming in July, right? Did I hear that right? Is that happening? I think it is. I think it is. Yeah, Joe's nodding his head. Yeah, Summer Olympics. So we're going to watch track and field. And in track and field in Summer Olympics, we see the runners in the relay. They're running, and they have a lane that they're running in. And this is the idea. Each runner has a lane to run in. And the Corinthian Christians would recognize this because of the races that were held. There were famous. The Ithmus Games took place. It was like second to the Olympics. The Ithmus Games took place in Corinth. And Paul's saying, I'm running in my own lane, not someone else's. God's given me a lane to, in, to run in, a sphere of influence to run in. And I'm running in my lane. I'm not trying to run in somebody else's lane. And that is so important for all of us to note. 
You have a lane to run in. You have something that God has called you to. God has called you to run in your lane, in your sphere of influence. And this is what God is wanting from all of us, is to see if that we're going to be faithful running in our lane. But what we need to also understand and be careful of is that we don't overstep our lane. We don't overstep our boundaries. If our view of ourselves gets inflated, this is what happens. This is the point that Paul's kind of making here. If our view of ourselves gets inflated, we try to widen our lane outside of God's will and we fall on our faces. And I've seen this happen time and time again. I'll give you a couple of examples. I've seen it in men in business. And they're in a certain business in a certain place, maybe in their company, and, and they're doing great. And it's like they, they are just hitting it on all cylinders. But they start looking at somebody else who's making a little bit more, doing a little bit better. And they think, oh, if I could just have that. And so they start trying to take on more. They start trying to move into a role that, that God hasn't wired them and, and designed them and gifted them to be in. And they, and they fall on their face. And they start, or they start striving to make something happen. You look at their life prior to that, and it's like God had been blessing and blessing and blessing. And they get to this place where it's like, you know, I'm not content in my lane. I want that guy's lane. And so they start trying to do more, and they start striving in the flesh, and they end up losing it all. I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen in people, with people in ministry where God has designed them in a certain way for a certain role and a certain gifting, but they're not content with that, and so they want somebody else's goal and their, or, or, or position, and they start just being you know, discontent, and they're trying to be something that they're not, and they finagled their way into a role that God never desired them to be in, and, and they fall on their face. And people get hurt in the process. So here's the question I have for you tonight. How are you running? First of all, are you running? (laughs) That's the first thing. You need to be running. You need to realize, hey, God's given me a lane. He's given me a sphere of influence. I need to be running. How are you running? Are you staying in your lane? Or are you comparing yourself with someone else? Listen, The best thing that you can do is allow God, if he wants to move you into a different lane, let him do that. Don't you try to do that. The measure that matters, you see, is not what people think. And it's not even what we think of ourselves. The measure that matters is what God thinks. Let's wrap this up, verse 17. Paul says, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. And it's interesting, the, 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 the term that Paul used to most describe himself in ministry was that of a servant of Christ. The word he uses is the word underrower. I want you to think about this. When Paul's talking about himself, he uses two terms. One is, is a servant, an underrower. The other is a bond servant, a willing servant. So you put those together. Paul says, I'm a willing underrower. What's an underrower? 
Well, if you've ever seen Ben-Hur or any of those kind of movies where they have those big galley ships, those big wooden ships, and, and, and they have a you know, top part where people at, and then they have these, you know, a bottom part, and you see out there's these holes, and outside the holes are these oars, and the oars are moving the ship. Well, those oars were not being moved by ropes or mechanical engines. They were being moved by slaves. And underneath, in the hot, sweaty, stinky part of the boat, this is where the slaves were. And they're the ones rowing the boat. They're the ones moving the boat. They're, they're the, the ones, they were the under rowers. What's their job? Their job is to get everybody on the top to their destination. Paul says, that's what I am. I'm an under rower. What's my goal? It's to get everybody that God's put in my sphere, on my boat, to the destination. What's the destination? That I might present them complete in Christ. That's what he's aiming at. That's what he's going at. Now, when the ship gets to the port, and you guys need to know this. Anybody, you're expiring to ministry here? Hey, you need to know this. When the ship gets to the port, they don't bring all the slaves out on top and give them a big round of applause. (laughs) No, they don't do that. They thank the captain who didn't do anything, <laughs> but they don't, they don't do anything for the slaves. And Paul says, the measure that matters is what God thinks. And the question that matters is who's getting the glory. Paul says, I'm doing this so that God gets the glory. Does he approve? And the word that Paul uses there when he says, In verse 18, for not he who commends himself is approved. The word approved there means to be, to approve something by testing. And this is what Paul taught. We saw this back in earlier chapters that God will judge our works by our motive. What was the motive? The things that were done with the right motive are gold, silver, and precious stone that endures the fire. Things that were done for the wrong motive are like wood, hay, and stubble that gets burned up in the fire. And so the question that we all need to ask is this, are we doing what God has called us to? Are we running in our lane? Are we thinking rightly about ourselves and our relationship to him? And I'll end with this story. There was a student a violin student who studied with a master. And he studied years and years and years to just perfect and really learn how to play the violin. And he had an opportunity to play at this big, very popular uh, concert hall. And it was packed full of people. And this young man, he gave and he went through his you know, piece that he was playing and he played it flawless. And when he was done, everybody stood in thunderous applause. They were just so impressed. But the young man was looking up in the balcony where the old man, his, his teacher was sitting. And he was looking to see what his response was. For you see, he was playing for an audience one and guys that's what we're doing we're playing for an audience of one jesus i'm not doing this for anybody else but him it's his applause 
that we're seeking after. He's the one that we want to run, and we're running the race, and we're running it with, with endurance, running in our lane, because our heart and our passion is we want him to be glorified. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this, again, wonderful example that we see in the Apostle Paul. We see his heart and the way that he approached his, his leadership and the way that he viewed what you had called him to, the sphere of influence that you had given him, the lane that you had called him to run in, that he wasn't worried about what other people thought of him and he had a right view of himself, but what he was most concerned about was what you thought of him. Did he meet your approval? That Paul was looking, he tells us this, looking for that day when he would stand before you and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And Lord, I pray tonight for each one of us that that would be our heart. That, that we wouldn't be worried about what others think. And we wouldn't compare ourselves. We wouldn't fall into that trap among ourselves. That we wouldn't be unwise in that way. But we would realize that you have fashioned each one of us and called each one of us. And you love each one of us. And you have a special work in calling for us. And Lord, help us to run in our lane. And help us, Lord, to battle. To fight in this battle knowing that the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God. Your word, your Holy Spirit, prayer to pull down strongholds. We love you, Lord. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight, any of them who maybe are struggling, Lord, that they would know tonight that you are with them, that you are for them, that you desire to strengthen them, that you want to pick them up right now and put them in their lane and help them run this race with endurance. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.